Welcome back to the Origins and Evolution podcast for our 11th installment. This episode is about atmospheric evolution and the evolution of the climate itself. To start off, we have a question for Demitar. How does the atmosphere of our solar system's rocky planets compare to one another? It is a very interesting comparison and it's relevant to us a lot because uh, life as we know it, we are surface uh, phenomenon or surface dwellers even if we are buried to some in minimum depth, uh, we still depend on the surface. So climate and life have always been related to each other. And when we look around the solar system, we see a lot of diversity. We have Venus, which is completely clouded, covered over with a very thick but toxic atmosphere, uh, with a lot of uh, thermal effects and high temperature on the surface. Then we have the Earth with a moderate but um, variable climate. Then we have Mars with a very unchanging climate nowadays because it's basically non-existent. Uh, the, the atmosphere is so thin that uh, it cannot really uh, shelter uh, much of the surface um, from the extremes of temperature and radiation. And then, of course, uh, there are bodies like Mercury, where there is no uh, atmosphere to speak of, just like on the Moon. So climate is not an issue there. So um, when we look at that, we also have to uh, see it in evolutionary timescales. Mars was not always like that. In fact, we know from the geological evidence on the surface of Mars that Mars' atmosphere was as thick as that of the Earth early on. And to some extent, early Mars was very similar to early Earth. Venus might have been a clement and nice planet early on as well. There are some colleagues who have models of Venus as a, you know, oxidized atmosphere, meaning carbon dioxide and dominated by nitrogen, similar to the Earth for about a billion years or so in the early times of the solar system when the sun was fainter. And then, of course, maybe perhaps due to the large volcanic eruptions like we discussed in the last episode, Venus turned into a really inhospitable planet. So you have to take it in time as well as uh, the way we see it today. Yeah, this is so interesting. Uh, I mean, of course, we're looking for uh, remnants of life or perhaps even subsurface microbial life on Mars. And maybe we will find it or maybe we'll find remnants of life that may have existed there billions of years ago. And it would be good to study more about Venus. I did not know that may, Venus at some point may have been in the habitable zone as well. We don't think of it very much because it is so toxic and hot today. But maybe that was the fate of this planet due to some really serious global Venus warning, warming. Um, and uh, But... That brings me back to Earth. Uh, one of the things that I used to think, at least, I thought, well, the atmosphere, the climate can change a little bit. The atmosphere, that's more or less a given, but far from it. It would be actually great to learn from you a little bit more about the, the very early atmosphere and the composition of our atmosphere, Demitar, when the planet formed and life just got going. Yeah, the, early, the earliest of all um, atmospheres... Uh, uh, we are almost certain was dominated by hydrogen and by what we called reduced uh, gases like methane, 
hydrogen cyanide, um, even some ammonia, but think of it as hydrogen mostly. Uh, that comes in for two reasons. The first reason is because uh, the planets are formed in a protoplanetary disk, which is very rich in hydrogen. And the second and maybe more important uh, uh, reason in that very early time of the history of the Earth is that the metals, the iron, hasn't yet completely differentiated through the mantle and settled into the core as it is today. So there is still a lot of remnant um, uh, metallic content in the mantle and even in the crust, which means that the volcanic outgassing is uh, dominated not by carbon dioxide, but by methane and hydrogen. So you start with this hydrogen-dominated atmosphere, but it doesn't last long. And that's mostly because of the sun. Uh, losing uh, hydrogen is a very fast process. And second, because of the interior changes in the core of the Earth, where the mantle and the volcanoes now start emitting mostly oxidized species, as we would call them, carbon dioxide being the main one in this case. So very quickly, you end up with an atmosphere which is dominated with very inert nitrogen gas and a fair fraction of carbon dioxide uh, and, of course, as always, water, which uh, we see in the record has always been there. So some greenhouse atmosphere uh, early on in Earth with a very, very large percentage percentages, not just hundreds of ppm of carbon dioxide and the even more potent greenhouse gas of methane uh, before er the atmosphere on early Earth did not have the oxygen, the molecular oxygen yet. Uh, oxygen was bound, as in carbon dioxide, for instance. And uh, we'll come to the great oxygenation event in, in a moment but um, it is remarkable to think that there were high percentages of methane and 10, 100, and even 1,000 time more, times more carbon dioxide at the time. But it turns out that was probably a good thing because our sun was not as strong as it was today. So maybe you could explain that dynamics a little bit more, yeah, Dimitar. Yeah, definitely needed uh, more protection from the cold uh, um, temperatures of space because that distance from a sun which is 25% fainter and provides you know less heat uh, uh, you need the additional greenhouse warming um, carbon dioxide by itself provides up to a point then it gets saturated and then you need additional greenhouses gases like water but you cannot use much of the water and then methane was really very useful in that sense. I have to point out, though, that um, the uh, time, the early time on Earth was punctuated by impacts. We talked about them in previous episode. And when a large uh, uh, asteroid hits the Earth, um, just like the Earth uh, asteroids, uh, miniature forms of rocky planets, they have a differentiated core of iron iron-nickel core. Uh, when an impact like that happens, a lot of this iron gets dispersed through the uh, impact site in a very hot molten form and interacts with the water directly. So it's a hot interaction, which is a well-known chemical reaction, which produces hydrogen. 
Uh, and that hydrogen can be significant and can temporarily inject the atmosphere um, with methane. And for a period of maybe 1,000, even 10,000 to 100,000 uh, years, depending on the size of the asteroid, you could have a return to the hydrogen-dominated and methane-dominated atmosphere uh, uh, of the very early Earth. So uh, just uh, think of the early history of the Earth as punctuated uh, between this and returning to the carbon dioxide atmosphere, which, by the way, is driven by an inexorable carbon cycle, which um, keeps us um, stable even today, uh, the carbon cycle or the carbon and silicate cycle, which has a built-in thermostat uh, and controls the global climate. That was true even back then. Yeah, Dimitar, that's so interesting. And um, then, of course, life became the great force on Earth that began to change our atmosphere and ultimately our climate. Life generated began to generate oxygen with photosynthesis. Uh, even photosynthesis hasn't always been the same there have been different flavors and levels and refinements of photosynthetic processes. Um, but the generation of oxygen, which then greatly accelerated for towards the great oxygenation event, numerous times has led to, well, well generally has led as a long-term trend to the more rapid decomposition of methane, the most potent of the greenhouse gases. Uh, but it also... Uh, can, along with water and rain, and then, of course, exposure of rocks, lead to a long-term trend of, of, of declining carbon dioxide levels. Thank goodness, if we had 5% carbon dioxide today, well, we wouldn't be having this conversation. That's pretty simple. Um, but tell us a little bit more about the oxygenation and then the grand oxygenation event that was driven by life and then a little bit an outlook of what effect that ultimately had on our climate. Um, your question leads me uh, to uh, start with a reference to one of my good friends and very important mentors, Professor Andrew Knoll, uh, who retired last year. But uh, just a month ago this year, he was awarded the Crawford Prize by the Swedish Academy of Sciences for geoscience for 2022. The Crawford Prize is uh, essentially the Nobel Prize for disciplines like geoscience, which were not uh, developed even or included in the original Nobel Prize. Um, so um, Andy No is the person who essentially figured the answer to your question and summarized it with the army of other colleagues, of course, but that is why he was honored uh, with the Crawford Prize. So essentially, as he likes to call them, the heroes of the great oxygenation events, essentially the cyanobacteria. He was the one who went to the ends of the earth to find uh, microfossils, uh, to identify them as cyanobacteria. What are cyanobacteria? Uh, thank you. That's a good question. So cyanobacteria are a form of bacteria, which are uh, quite dominant on our planet even today. Uh, they come in different colors, um, um, some greenish-looking, others uh, reddish-looking. 
you see them uh, quite often in uh, places which are full of brackish water, uh, especially if you are landing in uh, uh, San Francisco airport, just look uh, around down on the bay just before you land, and you probably, a lot of the colorful things you see in the shallow water are cyanobacteria. What they are known for are two things. Number one, they are um, particularly um, uh, active in uh, producing oxygen. So in their uh, metabolism, they use photosynthesis um, as energy source. They break down mostly carbon dioxide and, uh, you know, use the carbon and release the oxygen back to the atmosphere. Uh, they're also known for connecting to each other in little strings and mats. So they're also very uh, well known to making good um, microbial mats, especially on the early Earth. So they were very common on the early Earth as they are today, but mostly on the early Earth they were very dominating. And um, uh, most uh, colleagues would say that they're indeed um, identifiable as the major force behind the transformation of the atmosphere of this planet. So we should be very grateful. Maybe they kept us from a fate like Venus to where we might not have a toxic atmosphere, but we might have a super hot place here, or uh, maybe at some point the oceans would simply boil off and the lakes would boil off. Um, oxygen, well, first of all, we needed to breathe, and second of all, it led to a cooling that has generally been favorable towards the uh, evolution of life because we didn't go into runaway heating like in Venus. But... As you would expect, it then got out of hand and we went to glaciation periods and we even went to a few, probably two to four, snowball earth periods. Snowball earth when earth was completely frozen over or something, it was may have been a slush ball earth where maybe near the equator there was still some open water uh, mixed with ice but maybe some water still coming through because somehow we do know that life survived these Snowball Earth episodes. And they lasted not only for a winter, they lasted for tens of millions of years. So tell us a little bit more about the Great Oxygenation event and how that triggered the Snowball Earth. And by the way, how did we ever snap out of it? Why are we not living? Well, why are we not? Why are we living at all? And, and why is life today out here and we are multicellular and speaking into a microphone rather than having been frozen into oblivion on Snowball Earth. Yes, a good point, Frank. Um, we are indeed very thankful to our cyanobacteria ancestors uh, that uh, produced and still producing this oxygen uh, that led to us and still sustains us. Uh, but like every major breakthrough and revolution, uh, it was not an easy transition. First, uh, it's, oxygen is very toxic uh, to creatures that are not used to it. Microbes and anything else alike. Uh, second, uh, the advent of oxygen, which from the geological record and recent uh, exploration, happened very quickly. And on the time scale of 10,000 years or so, which on geological time scale is like instant. Uh, that uh, caused the geochemical 
disturbance in the atmosphere, which is significant, particularly uh, methane, the small amounts of methanes that were in the atmosphere. And some of this methane, by the way, was produced by methanogens, other microbes that produce methane, not oxygen. That methane dropped precipitously. Uh, it was one of those greenhouse gases that was important to keeping uh, the temperature moderately warm. And uh, also the carbon dioxide was going down uh, at the same time. So what we see in the geological record that the Great Oxidation event is also accompanied with a series of major glaciations, and many would argue actual snowball earth uh, events. So not only did the atmosphere become toxic to many of the existing early species of microbes at the time, but the climate uh, changed dramatically. It was a series of glaciations, and some of them very serious. It's interesting that these microbes uh, that do not like oxygen, the anaerobic bacteria, they survive today in our gut. They're an essential part of our immune system. They can get out of hand and cause infection, and they help us digest food, and, and not only us humans, but, but, but so many other creatures. So they continue to live, but they cannot be on the surface because they basically would not survive our huh, toxic atmosphere with 21% oxygen that we all like because that's what we breathe. And, of course, the dissolved oxygen is what the, the fish and other mammals and other plants, uh, sorry, animals need in, in the oceans. So these snowball earth effects... Um, I, th I think the most, um, they, they were in the last billion years ago. There probably were two to four of them. And we know that from geological studies of ocean levels, don't we? That there was so much ice on land that basically we knew that Earth was essentially frozen over completely. Yeah, the snowball Earth effect um, was introduced uh, maybe 50, 60 years ago. But the real evidence... Um, as a concept. As a concept. But the real evidence started accumulating only in the last uh, 20, 20, 30 years. Uh, people like Paul Hoffman and Dan Schrag were particularly involved in that. In uh, uh, The evidence comes in different ways. First of all, you um, have the standard evidence for glaciation. You see a lot of moraine rocks, a lot of sedimentary uh, rocks, which are obviously related to that. You see weathering, which is reduced because uh, the land mass is covered with ice and uh, rain uh, with uh, carbon dioxide dissolved in it is no longer uh, producing uh, the leaching of different metals and uh, uh, erosion into the oceans and lakes. So you see that in the geological record. It tells you there is not much exposed land. It's all covered with ice. Uh, you actually see the water level drop dramatically, 200, 300 feet, even more. Uh, all, all that we call the ocean continental shelf, where people go fishing, uh, deep sea fishing today, actually was dry. There were hundreds, thousands miles, you know, uh, away to the ocean from where the coast is today. So all that is seen in the geological record and is accompanied with uh, temperature proxies, which tell you the temperature was low as well. Uh, it was dry, not humid. So uh, there is plenty of evidence to tell us that the snowball events happened and when they did. Um, the interesting question is, why would the Earth get out of it? 
And here there is a little bit of physics. As you all know, especially now in New England when it's cold, if you go out uh, on a cold but sunny day dressed in black, you will be warmer than if you are dressed in white instead. It's called the albedo effect. Uh, you know, you're absorbing instead of reflecting back. Now, we also know up here in New England that when there is snow on the ground, there is a lot of reflection from the sunlight and not much warming. Same thing. So if you get into a snowball earth state, then you actually, it's kind of a runaway situation. You get colder instead of warmer. Sunlight gets reflected. We absorb less solar energy. So game over could have been the answer for Earth uh, some 850 million years ago once we were solidly frozen and all sunlight that we would have needed to snap out of it was reflected. But thank, thank, thank goodness we have tectonic activity, we have uh, plate dynamics, and we have the beloved volcanoes. So why are we grateful to volcanoes, Dimitar? Yes, we should be grateful to volcanoes. We depend on them although we don't always like them, uh, when they're in our backyard. Well, um, what comes to the rescue is the interior of our warm, molten planet. So the interior has enough energy to produce the uh, magma, which carries with it gases. And the most important gas in this uh, situation is carbon dioxide. So the Earth may be completely frozen, even totally 100% frozen, as you mentioned, that's not necessarily the case. But the volcanoes are not. Volcanoes poke through the ice no matter what. We see this in Antarctica today. There is an active volcano, Erebus, down there. We see it all over. And we see it in the geological record as well. So the volcanic outgassing goes unimpeded. And over a period of time of, you know, uh, fifty uh, five hundred thousand years to maybe a million years, carbon dioxide slowly accumulates in large amount in the atmosphere. Why? Because the Earth is frozen and hence it's dry. So actually, there are not that many clouds and there is almost no rain. So carbon dioxide dissolves in rain, and nowadays a lot of the carbon dioxide that comes from the same volcanoes comes down back to the Earth. But back then, during a the snowball effect, the carbon dioxide accumulates. And so eventually, its well-known greenhouse effect warms up the planet. And the irony is then, with thousands of ppm of carbon dioxide concentration, <clears throat> that, as Dimitar explained, has been building up from volcanic activity not washed away by rain, not being really absorbed or used uh, or, or, or with any carbon capture on rock surfaces because they're, uh, they're all covered by ice. You get this ver these very, very high carbon dioxide concentrations that eventually allows Earth to break through the ice and some ocean melts again and some glaciers melt over land. And then you get this other amazing runaway effect where because the carbon dioxide levels are still so high within a rel geologically relatively short period of ice of time of actually i don't know what the time frame would be very short 
right. Is it yeah. ten thousands? Is it millions of years? Uh, anyway, less than a million years. Well, less than yeah, a million 10, years. 000, all glaciation, 000. all glaciers from this completely frozen snowball earth, earth goes away, and we have episodes where there are trees near the North and South Pole, where there's large animals at, at later stages near the North and South Pole, because there's no glaciation at all. So it's quite the pendulum effect and quite challenging for life from being frozen over and only surviving near the equator or maybe under the ice uh, for tens of millions of years to periods where there's absolutely no glaciation and no ice at all. So it's that pendulum effect that went on for a few hundred, few billion and then a few hundred million years. Um, and then we kind of get into this most recent phase that we should talk about when we finally, in the last 50 million years, because probably land, the, the expansion of plants on land led to a further cooling. And then there's various also unexplained effects that may have to do with the configuration of our continents with the currents in our oceans that have led to a very significant global cooling in the last 50 million years ago. And then to a level where in the last 2.7 million years ago, the northern hemisphere at least had very regular ice ages. Typically, about we estimate about 50 ice ages in the last 2.7 million years ago. Not entirely periodic and regular, but quasi-regular. This wasn't one was a half a million years long and the other next one was 10,000 years. They all are 50 to 100,000 years long, these ice ages. And the last ice age that ended, uh, Boston, 18,000 years ago, was under a one-mile layer of ice and the glaciers ended somewhere near New York. Most of... Northern and Central Europe was frozen all the way down towards the Mediterranean. That's where the Neanderthals and Homo sapiens survived and perhaps met um, and, 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 in fact, inter, interbred. And, uh, of course, much of Northern Asia was frozen. So that's really quite remarkable. And, and, and really our modern, anything moving towards civilization could only begin with farming and agriculture after the end of the last major ice age and with this present interglacial period that started about, you know, that's a continuous process, but it really started about 18,000 years ago. Everything was still frozen. 13,000 to 10,000 years ago, we snapped out of that uh, last major ice age and, and, and went into the present interglacial period. And, uh, and then maybe you could, uh, then there are smaller temperature and climate fluctuations inside one of these interglacial periods. By the way, keep in mind that interglacial periods means period between major ice ages. So in the normal expected pattern, and after 50 ice ages in a row, that's a pretty much a good expectation. Without the present climate change that's now starting to be dominated by human civilization, we might be halfway through an interglacial period and maybe in a few thousand or 10,000 years, we would snap into another glacial period. That would be no fun either, especially when you're living in Boston or in Central Europe or Northern Asia, uh, we would freeze over and be under miles of ice. Not, not that our global warming is to be taken lightly because it has other effects, but Tell us a little bit about the various warm periods, even in the last 10,000 years, warm and cold periods, uh, and how they have 
prior to industrialization and industrialized architecture, how they have shaped our climate and what we have observed in during our written history and civilization. Yeah, you're right, Frank, that um, the Ice Age is um, very well recorded, um, the recent ones, and they are quasi-periodic. Um, uh, a lot of um, complex systems like the Earth, which have um, kind of balancing um, uh, processes um, on both sides, actually exist in this kind of dynamical equilibrium in which they oscillate between uh, two um, seemingly different states. Um, uh, ice ages followed by a warming and then another ice age and so on. Um, from an astronomical point of view, if you look at the Earth like from a, with the big picture and period of time perspective, that's actually a stable situation. Um, you know, it's not a snowball Earth effect. The glaciation only covers uh, some of the northern and southern hemisphere, and uh, the equatorial region is still uh, uh, moderately and climatically uh, temperate. So um, life goes on as normal. Uh, it is um, indeed something which is not helpful to civilization as we have it, but he ha we also have plenty of time to get our act together before the next one comes along. You're on the to Florida, huh? <laughs> <laughs> for example, yes, the glaciers never reached down there, um, uh, and in that sense, um, we have to understand that we live on a planet um, which is um, behaving that way. We're starting to understand this behavior, and particularly because we want to understand how to mitigate our current uh, fastly changing situation, uh, which is partially, to a great extent, um, driven by us. So we want to understand how to do that. Um, uh, but we live on a planet which is always uh, in some form of oscillation between warm and colder periods. Uh, that is uh, absolutely the case, and and life has been life's evolution of life has been driving and 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 terraforming our planet certainly in the sense that it has shaped our our atmosphere and our climate. It has generated from essentially zero percent oxygen <coughs> to today twenty one percent oxygen, which has helped us keep our planet from a run runaway Venus scenario. Um, we're now entering the age where the Anthropocene, where the anthropogenic um, climate change is probably is superimposed on these glacial interglacial cycles, and it's not entirely clear yet where that will go for the next hundred years or so, as our carbon dioxide levels are now above 410 ppm. During the last ice age, they were probably only at about 180 ppm. And before industrialization, when we came out of the little ice age, about 1850, we were at about 280 ppm. So on a geological time scale, due to the impact of industrialization, modern transportation, burning of fossil fuels, industrialized architecture, excuse me, industrialized agriculture. Um, we're right now changing our climate. We're probably warming up. We'll probably, we'll have with a time delay, but with a much longer time constant, 
a, a rising of the sea levels and uh, we can slow it down. That will take us decades to slow it down with renewable energy, perhaps eventually with fusion. That would be the ultimate nuclear fusion, the ultimate renewable energy. Um, but we already have triggered significant climate change. Where that will go in a thousand or 10,000 years, does that prevent the next ice age? That probably would be a good thing if you live in New England or in, 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 in Central Europe. But of course, it will also probably lead to rising sea levels. Most of the populations on Earth live very close to the coast. And if, if sea levels rise a, you know, a meter, that's, you can manage that. If they rise 20 meters, then the, you know, our, 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 our coasts will change very dramatically. Um, and uh, it will lead to new geopolitical arrangements. Some countries in a few hundred years may not be sustainable and some coastal regions may not be inhabitable anymore. Um, and uh, this is something that then goes beyond our discussions. So there's a lot that we can control and that we are responsible for. And uh, But it is also gives us pause and perspective to see how much change and very dramatic change there has been on geological timescales and even in just the last 2.7 million years ago with 50 ice ages. Uh, not snapping back into an ice age would be a good thing, but of course, and, and we're not really in danger of a runaway Venus scenario, but we are, of course, in very significant danger of continued warming and rising sea levels, which for life on Earth... It will just keep changing and evolving. Species will be extinct and others will find new opportunities. Uh, but for our, from our human perspective and at our country and geopolitical structures, it will bring dramatic changes and, and perhaps also a very significant incidence of, or additional incidence of disasters from wildfires in the West to hurricanes and... and, and uh, and 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 uh, typhoons in Asia. Um, it'll remain interesting, and it's not entirely clear where that's going on the long term. But in the short term, it is clearly something that we need to contribute to. Invest more in research in renewable energies, and uh, one of one of my favorites, and, and and hopefully somewhat undisputed, is if we can get nuclear fusion going in the next several decades. That, in addition with wind and solar power, of course, will make an enormous difference. Thank you again for joining us on Origins and Evolution for our 11th episode discussing specifically climate and atmospheric evolution. Mm-hmm.